Morning, everyone. Morning. Lovely to see you all. It's always a pleasure to come over here. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll lead us uh, briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us, uh, the convict us of the truths that would make us more like Jesus. And we pray that we'd able to be able to set aside hindrances and distractions uh, so that we can uh, engage in that most wonderful and gracious process this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Did I say one Corinthians? <laughs> Two Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, the topic of false teaching, and more importantly, of false teachers, is one of the most consistently mentioned issues in the New Testament. At least 18 of the 27 books that make up our New Testament have something to say directly about false teaching and the people who deliver it. In my observation, when it comes to approaching the issue of false teachers, as followers of Jesus, we can quite easily drift into one of two rather unhelpful extremes. On the one hand, there's what I call the witch hunt mentality. We're going to sniff out every last bit of heresy and condemn every false teacher so we can feel really good about ourselves. We're doctrinally pure, they're doctrinally corrupt, and having pointed it out, we can assure ourselves that we're super secure in the faith. That's the witch hunt mentality. Maybe you've experienced something like that or, or tended in that direction yourself from time to time. On the other hand, there is the equally problematic approach that I call the mum's mantra Approach. Basically, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. We think that being godly 
means being polite and not saying anything negative. So we just kind of ignore the issue of false teachers and say things like, well, I'm sure they mean well and who are we to judge and all those things. For a lot of people today, it seems like the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. Maybe you've experienced something like this or tended in this direction from time to time. But as I've said before, and I will gladly say many times again, our experience and our practice is one thing. The inspired word of God is another thing. The Bible stands over our experience and our practice. And God's word alone is ultimately to inform the way we think about the issues that it raises. And 2 Corinthians, especially our little passage for today, 11, 1 to 15, uh, and also incidentally for next week, has a lot to say regarding false teachers. How does God want us as followers of Jesus to approach the ongoing problem of false teachers? Well, today's passage has a lot to say in answer to that question. Now, if you remember from last week, we're up to the point where Paul is deliberately distinguishing himself from these people that he calls the super apostles who have infiltrated the Corinthian church. They'd apparently made all sorts of accusations about Paul. And uh, last week, uh, we gleaned a number of important things to sort of remember uh, when it comes to weathering personal attack. I think you guys had Jono here and he he would have talked about the seven principles. Is this ringing a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, About just taken from how Paul responded to those, uh, those charges. But defending oneself against... Slander is one thing, defending the church against a real danger that threatens to undermine salvation, well, that's another thing entirely. And it is actually at that point that Christians are right to stop being tolerant. That's where Paul starts off. The section begins with him, with his funny little saying. He says, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. Uh, He was probably labelled foolish, almost certainly, by the uh, super apostles. So in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, he embraces the label of being foolish, which actually becomes something of a mild put-down to the Corinthians. Paul implies that perhaps he truly was foolish to genuinely love and care for these Corinthians, given that it looks like they're tempted to reject the truth, the apostolic gospel that he had brought to them. And so from verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a jealous, a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpents, cunning your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And by the way, that's synonymous with saying you being followers of Jesus. Because Jesus says, anyone who wants to be my disciple has got to take up their cross and follow me. There's no such thing as a follower of Christ who doesn't have sincere and pure devotion. The thing that has made Paul afraid, the thing that threatens to make him a fool for having a godly jealousy for the Corinthian church is that they look like they could be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And what will lead them astray? Well, you'd think at this point I'd say the false teachers will. But not quite. It's not the false teachers per se, but the fact that the Corinthians tolerate false teachers and the distortions 
that they bring. So the next verse, verse 4. For because if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you receive, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, here's the problem, you put up with it easily enough. Tolerating, putting up with false teachers and their distortions is the big problem. And it's a problem that has a lot of scary elements. First of all, notice that according to Paul, it's possible to have an inauthentic experience of receiving the Spirit. When he ascended Jesus, after crucifying, risen, ascended into heaven, when he, he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he made sure that that particular event in, in theological history could not be misinterpreted. He enabled his disciples to speak in languages, or the, the word the Bible uses, to speak in tongues, that people from all these different nations, these different regions, could yet understand. It's kind of like a great reversal of what happened in the Tower of Babel. They all united with one language against God, so he confused the language. Now under Christ there is true unity under God, and so they've got different languages, but now everyone can hear them speaking the same. But the church, on that day, on that day that God poured out the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, the church was exclusively Jewish. You can read it. It's right at the beginning of the chapter of Acts 2. It was all Jews from all nations under heaven were gathered in one place. It was a bunch of Jews with different dialects, different languages, that were present when the Spirit was first given and the church was, was birthed. So, on subsequent occasions, when non-Jews, Gentiles, began to be converted. God the Spirit decided he would not only bring them miraculously to repentance and faith, but that he'd also give a similar visual kind of display, manifestation, like he did on the day of Pentecost, so that the Jewish believers could be absolutely assured that this really was the work of God the Spirit. Gentiles really are truly in the kingdom as much as anybody else because the Spirit came to them the same way it came to the Jews. Now, once the Gentile church was established, it was then sufficient for God the Spirit to bring God's chosen children to repentance and faith without the need, necessarily, of additional visual displays of his supernatural work. But from our passage here... We see that Paul assumes it's possible for people to receive a spirit that is not the spirit of God who accompanies the preaching of the gospel. Maybe what was happening, we don't know, but maybe what was happening is something similar to what I, and I suspect maybe some of us here, have seen in some church context up to this day where people start speaking in languages, but it's language that nobody can understand. Or where the spirit's movement seems marked by the loss of self-control, which is actually a dead giveaway that it's not the Spirit of God, for one of the fruits of the Spirit happens to be self-control. In any event, we can see from Paul's words here, a false receiving of the Spirit goes hand in hand with a different gospel and a different Jesus. The second scary thing is that what these false teachers are offering is, of course... Attractive. Of course it's going to be attractive. 
It's enticing. Just as Eve saw that the fruit, you remember, was pleasing to the eye and looked good for food. Well, so the different gospel, the different Jesus, of course, they always present as something enticing, as something you'd want to grab onto. When you put together all the apparent claims of the the super apostles, it looks like we're actually dealing with the ancient world equivalent of prosperity preaching. People who suppose that worldly success, worldly status is an indication of gospel faithfulness. Presenting as healthy, successful, well-loved is supposedly what makes for a good gospel ministry. Elevation of self is seen as the mark of the good teacher as opposed to humility and suffering. And that can actually be enticing. It does entice people. Uh, Here's a quote that I got from a modern-day false teacher, I won't say who it is, that I would imagine sounds very attractive. This person says, you are destined to reign in life. You are called by the Lord to be a success, to enjoy provision, to enjoy health, to enjoy a life of victory. I want you to know that it is not the Lord's desire that you live a life of defeat, poverty and failure. He has called you to be the head and not the tail. I kind of thought Christ was the head, but whatever. Now, I know that when you think about this sort of thing for two seconds with your brain switched on, you realise that, hang on, all the faithful brothers and sisters who live in the slums of Nairobi or Bangladesh, all the Christians who have been jailed in North Korea or Afghanistan are, according to this kind of teaching, people who obviously haven't truly been called by the Lord. But even so, you can see how initially at least this kind of thing can be quite appealing, quite attractive. The tolerating of false teachers, their different gospel, their different Jesus and their different spirit is something that drives Paul, and also God, of course, to a passionate jealousy. So much so, Paul is happy to go into what I call fool mode in order to set these Corinthians straight. And it's in this mode that he finally names the elephant in the room, the so-called super apostles. The Corinthians have known what he's talking about. He's known, but for the first time they actually get named. And he highlights their ungodliness by contrasting his own behaviour to theirs. So from verse 5, we're going into fool mode now. I do not think I'm the least inferior to those super apostles, which, as I said, is the first time in the letter he names those false teachers. It's obviously the case that the Corinthians know exactly the people that Paul is talking about and that they've claimed to be far superior to Paul. Two of the reasons they consider themselves superior is that they are trained orators, that is, trained professional speakers, and that they consider their performances, their sermons, I guess, Worthy of payment. So verse 6. I may be indeed untrained as a speaker, but I do, and I would say obviously have knowledge, that is the knowledge of the truth. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and I needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, but the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so 
As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, that's the knowledge, truth of Christ, knowledge, same thing. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Translation of Paul's full motoriness. Basically he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I didn't charge for my ministry among you. In fact, I went to great lengths to ensure I'd be the opposite of burdensome. And I'm proud of that. I am so tongue-in-cheek unworthy of being paid for my ministry that I'll call my support that I receive from other churches robbery. Which, I mean, reality is kind of more like what the super apostles are actually doing to you guys. The way those super apostles ridicule me and show me how much unlike them that I am, (laughs) bring it on. It's something I will wear as a great badge of honour. Guys, I've heard that if you're a singer, a musician or a DJ who does wedding gigs in particular, and you're not getting very much work, the work's drying up, The way you can get more work is to increase your advertised rates. You see, if you're more expensive to hire, people assume you must do a super quality job. And when it comes to a big pagan wedding to which people foolishly ascribe so much importance, you know, everyone goes to the big fairy tale wedding where thousands upon thousands of dollars are spent, well then, of course, only the best will do. So they spend the money. Want more work? Charge more money. By charging more money, you're effectively talking yourself up. I'm superior to the other people in the market. And that's kind of what the pagans chase after. But here, Paul is saying, I don't belong to this fallen world and the way it operates, but I belong to the kingdom that is not of this world. I will gladly talk myself down and do what I can to not charge you anything. It's like, which do you think is the more Jesus-ish approach? The super apostles? Super me, look at me, I'm so awesome, pay me money. Or, no, no, I don't want to be a burden. I want to sacrificially love and serve you. It's clear who's, who's the Christian and who's not, basically. The other really important thing to notice here is that the driving motivation between, uh, behind Paul's unhinged kind of words is not only his godly jealousy, but of course, his love. Love that doesn't elevate self, but serves the other. Love that sacrificially bears burdens in order to benefit the other. Love that looks pretty much like what you see in the person and work of Jesus who, of course, would suffer in order to present people like us, sinners like us, pure in his sight. Interestingly, elsewhere, in another part of the Bible, Paul instructs the young church leader, Timothy, to stamp out the work of false teaching so as to promote Christ-like love. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people to not teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal, note, of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Friends, a loving 
leader, a loving church, see as part of their Christian walk a great importance in making sure that false teachers are not tolerated, which means they obviously need to be identified and avoided. The elephant in the room has been named, and yet it is godly jealousy and love that have led Paul to that point. And you can tell he's being loving even as he condemns the super apostles because of the way he's conducted himself toward the Corinthians in all these other areas, all these other, you know, choosing not to be a financial burden to them. And with that, we come to the very sharp end of the matter, whereby Paul has moved decisively from defence to attack. Verse 12. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. In other words, Paul will keep endorsing and validating weakness and hardship for the sake of Christ. He will keep sacrificing himself for the sake of elevating others. He will keep boasting in his weakness. He will keep resolving to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which we saw back in 1 Corinthians. And one of the reasons he'll do that is not only to see this Corinthian church established in the kingdom, but also to have the false teachers have the ground, as he says, cut out from under them. And why will he shamelessly show up the super apostles in order that they are rejected and condemned? Well, obviously, verse 13, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Friends, there's no getting around this. And comfortable as it may be, the authorised ambassador for our Lord, namely the Apostle Paul, indicates that we can expect Christian leaders who are in reality servants of Satan. And that's what he says. And therefore they are destined for hell. Christian teachers who are serving Satan, Christian teachers who are destined for hell, not therefore literally Christians. They do a good enough job of masquerading even as apostles of Christ that genuine believers can be misled and compromise or even lose their devotion to Christ. An obvious question to ask at this point, of course, is, well, how can you know which teachers are legit and which are false, the servants of Satan? Well, as we've seen in this half of the section, we'll continue to see in coming weeks, there's varying degrees of emphasis on two things, two categories, namely theology and conduct. Theology, conduct. Uh, Varying degrees of emphasis on theology of false teachers and also the conduct of false teachers. That is the way they behave. We've seen there's a different gospel and a different Jesus that can be taught. And we'll see next week, actually, and I'm just going to steal a little bit of uh, next week's sermon, that these super apostles can, in terms of their conduct, enslave, exploit, take advantage of their hearers, put on airs, i.e. act as if they should have their great authority recognised, be bowed down to kind of thing, and even assert their dominance over their hearers. Bad theology, bad conduct. 
You're always going to take the two, right? You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their heresy. As unpalatable as we might find it, the word of God makes it clear for us that false teachers are heading for hell and therefore are not to be tolerated in the household of God. They can be identified by both theology and conduct. And we've also seen that it's godly jealousy and Christ-like love that are the reasons for, and even, I would argue, shape the way in which false teachers are rejected. In Australia, throughout most of the 20th century, last century, the biggest flavour, if I can put it that way, of false teaching that I think posed a threat to Bible-believing Christians was what I would say is theological liberalism. That is the idea that the Bible is not ultimately the word of God, but it needs to be subjected to human reason. A brilliant and tragic example of theological liberalism could be seen in the ministry of the Anglican Archbishop of Perth, from 1981 to 2005. This is Anglican, this is our church, our denomination, a man named Peter Carnley. Regarding the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Archbishop, Anglican Archbishop Peter Carnley said, Paul and Matthew may have believed that the resurrection was physical, but they were men groping towards the truth and was conditioned by time, by their time as we are. And again, the best we can do is conclude that the assertion of the resurrection of Jesus is one possible interpretation of the available evidence. The story is a sign which alerts us to the possibility that Jesus was raised. This is our denomination and an archbishop. Today, from what I can gather, the biggest flavour of false teaching that currently, I think, poses the greatest threat to Bible-believing Christians, to to evangelicals, uh, has got to be what's called the Word of Faith movement, which, of course, encompasses the prosperity gospel. I'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but first I think it's important to stress that the thing that guards against the influence of false teachers is quite simply apostolic truth. That is, the teaching of the apostles, including Paul, which of course we now have in a permanent written record called the Bible. Uh, Keep coming to your Bible. Keep coming to your church. Um, I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, or maybe here, I don't don't know if I haven't preached here enough, but I, I usually... To anyone who knows me, I sound like a broken record when I say this. It is for this reason that systematic reading and preaching from the Bible is a make-or-break issue. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, today I'm preaching 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. You know where the sermon's going to start and what part of the Bible is going to be read next week? It's going to be the next verse, 2 Corinthians 11 from 16 to whatever. And the week after that, it's going to be 2 Corinthians 12, right? We, we let the word of God be delivered as if it's the whole counsel of God that's important, because it is. Now, there's a very good and important place for 
non-systematic, like topical teaching, doctrinal teaching, I, I'd even be comfortable with up to like a quarter of the year being, being given over to topical sermons in some time. But that's still the exception that proves the rule. Systematic Bible reading and teaching is a make-or-break thing. You see, if that's never how things are kind of done in the household of God, then it's not actually God sending the agenda, it's me. There are things in the Word of God that I would be not so comfortable to teach on, so I would just avoid them. And you'd rock up and you'd have, all well, here, these are a few of my favourite things. It would be the power residing in me rather than in the Word of God. I want to be able to die and the next guy come along and take up where I left off because it's not me, it's the Word of God. You go to a new church someday because, you know, you've moved out of area. You get, one of the most important things you've got to look for is, is the, are the Scriptures read and taught systematically? Is that what's encouraged? That's a really important thing that I've got to say of the places where I've seen really dodgy theology and, and false teachers, frankly, is when that's not been the case. Now, that's, I've said a lot of stuff about false teaching, or I guess, or some serious stuff about false teaching with our own denomination. But one of the biggest threats from outside has got to be, as I said earlier, the word of faith movement that goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel. Now, this is tricky because, like a lot of false teaching, it's kind of hard to, to, to pin down, to codify, to summarise. But the word of faith movement, if you distill it finely enough, which took a bit of work, it holds that man, humanity, having been made in God's image, is therefore able to speak things into being like God does. There's actually a name for this. It's called the Doctrine of Positive Confession. Further, as we are made in God's image, we are little gods. And I kid you not, there's a doctrine called the Doctrine of Little Gods. And that kind of means that it should be evident that as little gods who can powerfully speak things into being and existence, that we should not be sick or poor or marginalised or suffering. Such things can easily be averted through our godlike positive confession. And it usually seems to be the case that they can also be averted through giving money, which God will bless and then return with interest. And I kid you not, this is called the doctrine of seed faith. This is a real, I had to look into this stuff, right? This is a real thing. Usually those who espouse these views also attribute roles to God the Spirit which we find foreign to Scripture. And they relegate it to something necessary as part of your Christian experience, particularly a thing called, and I kid you not, the doctrine of spiritual ecstasy. That is, you know the Spirit is upon you if you enjoy this period of spiritual ecstasy. And I sort of hate to think what happens when you come, come down from the other side of the spiritual ecstasy. The prosperity gospel... It's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's the love child of the word of faith theology and, and, uh, and the, the doctrine of, of seed faith, giving you money. It's probably better described as over-realised eschatology, but when people hear that, they go, that's a big fancy word, I don't know what you're talking about. What's over-realised eschatology? Prosperity gospel is an easy one to understand, but I'll tell you. Eschatology is a fancy word that theologians to, to use to, to speak about what happens at the end. Because your end point actually determines all the other stuff. 
At the end, Jesus Christ will return as judge. He will judge the living and the dead. Those who had their faith in him, their sins have given, will be with God in heaven in eternity. Those who remain in their rebellion against him will not be in heaven. They will be punished by God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, shut out from his presence. Hell. When we are with Christ, with God, in heaven, there is no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. That is our eschatology, that's our end point. But if you over-realise that, you bring it into the present prior to Christ's return. And so you think as a follower of Jesus, now I should have no suffering, no sickness, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Those things are somehow indications that I'm not in Christ. And so when you do have the sickness, the mourning, the suffering, it's obviously your faith hasn't been good enough or you haven't given enough money. You can see how an evil teaching this is, right? Uh, And yes, I kid you not, I know of two circumstances involving literal death where brothers and sisters, I hope, or false brothers and sisters, I'm not sure, have attributed those deaths to a lack of faith or giving. Uh, One of them was a, a teenage guy who had leukemia, he went to a service and got healed, so he stopped taking his medication. <coughs> Three months later, he had passed away. I asked people there at the service what had happened. Oh, he, he got healed. It was really good, but obviously he didn't have enough faith after that, which is why he died. I found out about this when I was trying to evangelise his mother, who was really open to the gospel, but couldn't set foot in a church. The other one was a stillborn, where people said, you obviously have some sort of sin in your life as to the reason this, uh, the, the child came out. Wow, even if you thought that, which is totally whack and dodgy, would you go and say that to someone? My goodness. But it's just a natural outworking of over-realised eschatology. You should have spoken the positive confession to make the baby alive, kind of thing. As far as I can see, on, the, on account of the speaker's that they platform the annual Hillsong Conference. Put it in hand if you've heard of the annual Hillsong Conference. Anyone heard of this? Yeah. Has easily got to be the biggest promoter and propagator of false teaching, particularly this kind in Sydney, frankly, if not in Australia. It is blatantly obvious to anyone that does any research, as I've done, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, They hold to and espouse that word of faith theology. Kong He, Joseph Prince. By the way, that was a Joseph Prince code I I gave you earlier on in the sermon. Uh, Espoused prosperity theology through and through. Uh, T.D. Jakes, guy known as a oneness Pentecostal. That means he literally rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. All of these speakers. Bill Johnson's another one. Bethel Church, prosperity through and through. All of these speakers have been keynote speakers in Australia at Hillsong's annual conference over the last decade. Which we should both desperately pray for their repentance and conversion and at the same time, frankly, strongly discourage anyone from attending that sort of thing or giving that sort of thing any kind of credit. It's right even to go a step further. You've probably noticed if you've been in in Grace Anglican here or morning or night or whatever for a while that our song choice, our congregational singing will not involve anything from Hillsong or from Bethel or from anywhere that really sort of pushes word of faith and prosperity stuff. And that's actually, that's kind of like a pretty serious issue because in the Bible, congregational singing is a ministry of the word. 
You'll remember what you've sung more than you remember what I've said today. <laughs> and the Bible sets it up as a ministry of the word. There's all kinds of services, but the ministry of the word is especially important and needs to be protected. Uh, Colossians 1.28 compare with 3.16. Colossians 1.28 compare with 3.16. You realise that Paul speaks about ministry of the word as happening when we're singing to God and one another. And so it is absolutely disgusting to say at the time where we are engaging in the word ministry to one another, that we are right then funding false teaching and promoting false teaching. That's anathema. It's like, to use very old Israelite language, it's like walking your idol into the temple of God. And that's actually how Paul speaks about the church throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians, is the temple for which he has a godly jealousy which actually harkens back to what you read in, say, the first sort of 20 chapters of Ezekiel about idolatry in the temple provoking God to a jealous anger. We don't do that. And it's a great travesty that, frankly, a lot of Sydney evangelical Anglican churches do. Back to our own neck of the woods again. Another big problem in our denomination is the rise of claims of bullying amongst clergy. Theology, remember? Conduct. The other one. My wife, Stacey, happens to work for the PSU, the Professional Standards Unit of the Anglican Diocese. And a lot of the cases they deal with are with clergy basically mistreating people by little things one at a time, insidious, you know, one that you could excuse but it just happens again and again, marginalising, sort of saying a harsh word to, humiliating, things like that. It's a big problem. Um, character is the first of the three C's. Who doesn't know? Oh, okay, I'll explain anyway. The three C's, right? Character, conviction, competency. Three big words. Character, conviction, competency. Any godly leader, you want to have all three, right? You want to have a good character, you want to have good conviction. Conviction is your knowledge of the truth. Competency, able to actually do stuff. But character absolutely dwarfs the second two. You can be really good as a preacher. You can have perfect theology and you can be an absolute jerk. And that is just not okay. As a matter of fact, far better to be a fairly mediocre and lame preacher and and struggle like I do with what a spreadsheet is and stuff like that, but have solid character, a love for people, a gentleness, a humility, an approachability. Any day of the week, your character is from... Why do we have, myself and, and, and Gav usually preaching here. They're far better preachers. We could just stick them up on YouTube, right? Alistair Beggs, John Woodhouse, Philip Jensen. We could have amazing R.C. Sproul. Stick them on the screen. Why why do we have just this going on every week? I'll tell you why. Because those people are on a screen and they're they're distant relationally. You don't know what they've eaten for breakfast. You don't know what they're doing that afternoon. If I start doing something heaps dodgy, or definitely Gav, if Gav starts doing something really dodgy, it's much more likely that you're going to see it, right, than if one of them starts doing something. You're not going to know that. Right? The character, the conduct of the people. That's why we, ministry is relational. That's why we, we do what we do like this. Um, and you'll see it and you'll pick up and you'll say, hey, Gav, you're doing this dodgy. And you'll go, oh, yeah. Right. And you would say to me, man, you're doing this dodgy. And I go, yeah, you're right. Or I won't go, yeah, you're right, and you'll say, hey, John, something's wrong with Ben, get rid of him. And he will. That's, that's how it should be. Last thing. 
helpful thing to just keep in mind as we approach the issue of false teachers without drifting either into witch hunt mode or to mum's mantra mode is I think getting the right understanding of the relationship between head and heart. It's very easy for us to be soft-headed and yet hard-hearted. Anything goes, but I'm really, I've got my own issues and sin that doesn't get challenged. It should be the other way around. You should be hard-headed, but obviously soft-hearted. That's a fitting description of the Apostle Paul who imitates our Lord Jesus. You think Paul's getting harsh here? You heard him in Galatians? Those Judaizers, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Jesus, woe to you, Pharisee. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you get him, you're making twice as much a son of hell as what you are. This is Jesus. This is Paul. And yet the same Jesus and same Paul, Jesus is gentle and lonely lowly of heart and approachable. Paul is, was even accused of being timid when he was in person with the Corinthians because he... One of my favourite preachers is a guy who preached some hellfire sermons and then I went and saw him to have a chat in person. He was the most gentle, warm person that I've ever met. It was, it was extraordinary. The guy there could hammer his fist and it's because he's so gentle and lovely that you actually listen to him when he does the hellfire stuff because he's got a good character. He's got a soft heart. Hard-headed, Soft-hearted. Now, right in my notes, I've got a thing there. Say something nice, concluding prayer. <laughs> but I realise that, you know, with the stuff that I've said this morning, um, I want to say something different, and that is you might have questions, comments that might be burning. I don't know. So what I'm going to say instead is, you know how we use that QR thing for your connect? Okay, you really, really can use that. Okay, say, Ben... What did you mean by this? Or Ben, you know, are you crazy? Or whatever it is, right? That, that's actually what I want to impress upon you. Uh, it's important that you know, there's a, a conversation if there's stuff that's you know, fed a ruffling kind of thing. Now that I've said that, I'm going to conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you warn us in your word for our good. We lament the fact that there are those who pose as servants of righteousness, but who are indeed servants of Satan, who are heading for hell and will be condemned on the last day. We pray earnestly, Father, for those who are false teachers, that you'll grant them the gift of repentance and faith. And we pray for us that in line with the Corinthians, we would not tolerate false teaching and false teachers, not for the sake of feeling judgmental and superior, but for the sake of love and godly jealousy that you have and our apostle has for us and for the sake of maintaining a pure devotion to Christ and therefore esteeming him with such high value, the value that he deserves as the head of our church. Heavenly Father, please um, protect us uh, from drifting into falsehood and thank you for the wonderful assurance that as we sang, Christ will indeed hold us fast as we continue to look for your word and for our teaching. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.